This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research. Uh, my co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Uh, Professor, we're going to have a really interesting discussion on, on the show today. Second half, uh, or our main guest is going to be Audrey Choi of Morgan Stanley. We're talking about the trends in sustainability, investing, ESG. Uh, but there's uh, a lot to start off with the markets this week, mm-hmm. Professor. A lot of volatility, uh, a lot of back and forth on the fiscal. How are you? How are you thinking? What's your pulse? Well, just hot off the press. Fifteen minutes ago, uh, Larry Kudlow, chief economic advisor, says we've basically got a deal. And um, wow, the market is rallying on this deal. Um, uh, to say the least, right now, uh, you know, the Dow is up 221 points. Um uh, yields are also uh, up a lot in the bond market. Means that the uh, you know this is this is the, I think this is going to happen. <laughs> it, it's interesting because McCon- we get these headlines. McConnell said, "Oh, there's not going to be a deal." This is before Trump announced he's got a deal. Uh, now people say, "Oh, just a minute, are the Senate, uh, the Republicans, going to vote for it?" Of course they are. I mean, now first of all, everyone has to realize all you need is two Republican senators to say yes. Um, and after the pro- president says yes, you know, they're going to have two. That's assuming, of course, the Democrats can get their people to say yes. But, uh, you know, the Democrats are not, not going to stand away if, Pelosi, if uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi has said this is a, what we want and we've gotten almost all our cake and eat it, too. So, you know, I, I, I think it's a deal, uh, which is good for the economy, good for the stock market, bad for the bond market. All the things we've been talking about, I think there's a deal um, here and uh, really positive for the stock market. Um, is it enough to help Donald Trump uh, in three weeks? Probably not. Um, the polls are dismal for the Republicans. The betting markets are dismal for the Republicans, um, where the real money is being put. Um Right now on the betting market, uh, 30, uh, 69%, uh, basically 35%, um, uh, two to one, uh, for Biden. Um, actually those that do simulations have got it about four to one, but there's, you know, a lot of people remember what happened four years ago. Uh, the, uh, Senate markets are only very slightly better, uh, 68 uh, percent uh, that now there, there's that the, the Senate is really important in a Biden victory. Um, it looks right now um, if you if you follow the betting markets and the smart money that the Dems will have 51 votes. They have they have two um, uh, races, uh, the North Carolina race. Um, basically, it's Cunningham against Tillis and the Iowa race, Greenfield versus Ernst. Both of those are Republican incumbents where the polling has gone for very effective Democratic uh, in, uh, um, opponents against the incumbents that are Republicans. Um, but those are, you know, we're, we're talking 60-40 on those, 60, you know, so the, it, it, it is possible you know, that those could still go the other way. In any case, it looks like Senate's going to be very, very close, which is very important in terms of what kind of policy, even if the Dems sweep 
um, uh, going uh, forward. Um, big news is definitely, I think, th- this this um, uh, this potential deal. Now, uh, you know, Trump can't back out now. I mean, he's got to be throwing Hail Marys. He's got to have a deal. He's got to have something that's going to move the polls. He's going to make a push on this. And 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 there's now, you know, I I I, I definitely see it. I definitely see it happening. This is positive. But it also adds a lot of liquidity to the market, um, more checks, more money, more fiscal stimulus, and then um, now let's let's be, let's let's be clear that the we've seen what's happened in the bond market again. Um, um, after doing virtually nothing for months, bonds fell and yields are rising. Not yields are rising. On the uh, on the idea that if there is a democratic sweep, um, which now looks likely, not at all positive, but looks likely, um, that uh, you know there's going to be a lot of fiscal spending, and uh, there's going to be an infrastructure. There's going to be no impediment on uh, to get anything done that the Dems want to get done. Uh, at least that has broad-based support, like an infrastructure bill and all the rest. I mean, things that are very controversial. Then they've got to be careful because the, the, the margin in the Senate is going to be narrow. But on, on stuff like that, this is a lot of extra debt. As as you know, um, I've said this year is the end of the nearly 40-year bull market in government bonds, and we will never see yields on government bonds as low as we saw them a few months ago. I am still... Um, holding to that and and believe that that is actually uh, going to be uh, going to be the case uh, stock market I mean big recovery from this sell-off a healthy correction from excesses that got into the market at the end of of uh, August trend followers uh, too much speculation in a number of those tech stocks um, now Nasdaq has not done badly um, value stocks have, you know, it's not like, you know, the, the, the growth and tech has collapsed. Um, they went down more 15%, S&P 10% bottom to top, but they both come, come back. But, I, uh, um, you know, the case where you've, you've always had a, a persistent lead of NASDAQ over the Dow and the S&P, that's just not quite happening now. With this uh, uh, stimulus, second stimulus program, that argues more towards the reopening of the economy. Um, we, we do, of course, have virus problems, but um, we also have, you know, more therapeutics. I mean, um, you know, what, you know, Trump took on the Regeneron, that really worked. Um, and, and, and Eli Lilly has one, and the trials are good. And we will, in the next four to six weeks, have a lot of, uh, of uh, good news, I think, on, on trials and therapeutics, on vaccines, um, uh, you know, so that, that uh, you, know, it, it, you know, towards 2021, all of the liquidity that's been added can be uh, effectively used as the, the reopening of the economy um, moves, uh, moves forward. So a lot of people ask, like, what is priced into the markets? And, you know, with, you know, the, it, it seems clear it's going Biden, you know, at least, uh, you know, the, the, all the, those betting markets and the polls and all the rest. What, do, do you have a sense of, like, what would be uh, market reaction under various scenarios if Trump was the quote-unquote surprise mm-hmm. again now? Like, how, how do yeah. you think the markets react to all this? I mean, if Trump pulls out, uh, you know, a rabbit from the head again, wow. I mean, I, I can't uh, – then, then he's also got the Senate. You've got no tax increase at all. I mean, actually, if the Senate holds, you'll have no tax increase at all, which is the, the biggest negative of, of, of the Biden uh, uh, situation. That's good. Uh, they don't – don't forget, the market has never liked the volatility with trade and China. In a way, they'd love to put that behind him, uh, the, behind them, the volatility. I mean, I've had a number of people tell me, listen, you know, I don't like these taxes, but if we can get rid of the volatility and we have a lot of spending, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. So, you know, I think 
I think Wall Street was beginning to to actually say, all right, there might be a Democratic sweep. Uh, we can live with it. Especially again, I mean, if the if the Senate is almost even, uh, you know, you, you're you're not going to get a a, you know, a huge radical wave. I mean, there's, there's way too many, uh, <laughs> you know, Democratic senators that are considered moderate. They were not for. The left wing at all of the Democratic Party, they, they're going to be facing election in two years. Um, you know, they're going to tamp down on any radical Democratic uh, agenda, even if they take all three. But, yeah, I mean, if, 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 if Trump could pull a rabbit out of the hat in, 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 in some ways, I mean, I, I think it would be net good for the market. Um, would he make it more, him more volatile on trade and China and all the rest? Well, you know, I think he's gained a little bit of experience. A lot of good policies. Um, mostly they were Republican policies uh, that were enacted um, because Trump controlled the Senate and controlled the presidency. But, um, 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 you know, I think it would be positive. But I think basically if we have a close Senate race, even with a Democratic victory, I now am beginning to believe that is not the, the death knell for the uh, equity markets. Uh, you know, we've been doing a, a feature on the program, Professor, where people can write in questions to Ask Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, at wisdomtree.com. And we actually had a pretty extended question, uh, and I think I thought you would enjoy it. So I'm going to read the, the whole question and, and then let you respond. Um, so they, they actually talk back to uh, your book, Stocks for the Long Run, and they sort of quoted one of the tables uh, that looks at holding period returns on portfolio allocations. And, they, they, you know, they talked about for investors uh, in a moderate or risk-taking with a 30-year horizon, you know, the best allocation seems to be 100% stocks uh, or even with leverage. Uh, and they say they followed your advice for nearly 20 years. It's helped uh, with a nominal return of about 10%. But now you're talking about uh, the hedge assets, the traditional 60-40 going towards a 70-30. Um, and so they, you know, they wonder for long-term investors, is that really the right versus the 100%? Uh, and sort of, you know, they think about tax and efficient rebalancing, transaction costs for advisors. You know, so with that in mind, they wanted to sort of know how you think about passive active uh, stock and bond investments and, and that overall allocation. Yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, I in, in the first few editions of Stocks for a Long Run, and I did the risk return on really long term, and I said, my God, really, you should be 100% in stocks. Um, um, there, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, uh, they they call their you know I have a thirty year forty year but definitely they worry about a shorter run volatility. Um, as you know on this show, um, we we've been saying that the old sixty forty is outmoded. We've been talking about seventy five twenty five. I mean you know I think young people should be basically a hundred at at current levels. Bonds serve really no person no. No function for younger people. There's a little bit of a hedge for older people. There's that short-run negative beta to cushion short-run volatility. But if you've got that long-run horizon, uh, you know, bonds bonds are, I think, uh, going to be a disaster. So, yeah, for a young person who doesn't care about any short-term, you know, volatility, you go on 100% stocks, well-diversified. Um, for older people, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to we're trying to convince them. Hey, give up sixty forty, just go seventy five twenty five. Um, and um, you know, when we started talking about this a year or two ago, it is amazing the number of people that are now talking about it because they just see that bonds are yielding nothing, and uh, there are there are threats ahead. You know, with a stronger economy and inflation that. That bonds are going to be a uh, extremely poor asset class uh, and fall, fall to the bottom of the of the heap uh, going forward. Very good, Professor. Thanks for some thoughts to start the show and, and answer the questions. We'll talk with you yeah, uh, next you. week. We'll talk to you next week. You're, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and I'd like to welcome my guest, Audrey Choi, who's Morgan Stanley's Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Sustainability Officer. She's a member of the firm's management committee. Welcome to Behind the Markets, Audrey. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's great to be with you. 
Uh, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got to the role you're at today at, at Morgan Stanley, and and uh, what it is you do as Chief Sustainability Officer. Uh, sure. Well, I I, uh, I will confess I've had a, a little bit of a non-traditional path to Morgan Stanley. Um, uh, before my I, um, my first career was actually as a uh, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I had the really wonderful adventure of being a reporter, a bureau chief, a foreign correspondent, investigative journalist for uh, for the Wall Street Journal. Um, actually, covering post-reunification Germany, which was an amazing an amazing story and journey. Um, I then spent about uh, six years in the Clinton administration in a variety of roles where I got to work on the um, economic policy team with, uh, as chief of staff to Janet Yellen at Council of Economic Advisors, as well as on um, uh, Internet and um, uh, economic development policy, working as a policy advisor for Al Gore. Um, wow. And then I uh, spent a couple of years doing a variety of really interesting things with nonprofits and publishing, uh, actually working directly for Al Gore post White House. Um, somewhere in there, you know, went back to Harvard Business School and um, ended up working uh, at a private equity firm for international nonprofits. And then after all that, um, had a pretty wonderful serendipitous encounter that led, some, led me to uh, meet a Morgan Stanley person who said, you should come talk to us. Um, and that was uh, 13 years ago. And since then, I've had a pretty amazing journey here at Morgan Stanley uh, with a, a number of different roles. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly one of the most exciting things was that Morgan Stanley actually agreed back in 2009 which, as you and your listeners will recall, was a pretty tumultuous time in financial markets. In 2009, Morgan Stanley, <laughs> exactly. uh, Morgan Stanley greenlighted my founding the Global Sustainable Finance Group. Wow. So um, it, with all that background, I think I have to ask a little bit, I mean, given the political side and some of the and working with Janet Yellen, how, how would you describe just the current environment, given all your backgrounds there? I mean, where, the current environment, how, how are you reacting to everything going on on a daily basis right now? Well, um, you know, probably not my place to opine on politics. What I will just say is, um, uh, you know, I think that um, I believe that public policy is extremely important, um, that the federal government, um, as well as state and local governments, have incredibly important roles to play in terms of um, uh, in terms of a number of things that are really critical, both on a day-to-day basis and on a long-term basis. Um, you know, I think that um, uh, from my seat now in business and finance, um, it, you know, has really reinforced my belief that... Um, I know that uh, one of the things that is uh, is really important to have is uh, is things like the long term R and D um, that the federal government has uh, supported over the years, um, you know, pursuit of science and research, and um, uh, that you know, look, I, I think it's. Um, you know, not, not going to get into individual, you know, policies or decisions or whatnot, but I, I think that um, it's incredibly important to have a productive partnership between the government, business, um, science, um, and, um, you know, I think uh, I am very uh, hopeful that uh, that we can, can really um, think about a... Um, you know, productive long-term partnerships with 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 the government. Um, and look, as we're as we're seeing right now, obviously, the role of the government right now is 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 critical in terms of being able to provide both immediate relief and um, and help the communities in need, as well as some of the longer-term policies that, uh, that that have to that have to get put in place for protection of the environment, strengthening of communities, and creating of economic opportunities. Um, in addition to you know, all the many important safeguards that uh, that oftentimes only government can provide. Yeah. And, and sort of Morgan Stanley, with, with your role as chief sustainability officer, is trying to do a lot in in, in sort of leading and in, in thinking about sustainable type investment goals. And, and you've done a lot of work there. I mean, I'd love to hear as you think about just the industry, how it's trending here and, and how you're and, and sort of the role you're you're actually doing there overseeing this. Maybe give, give us a little bit of background on on what it is you're doing. 
Absolutely. Um, so as I said, you know, I joined Morgan's family back in uh, 2007, and it was in 2000, uh, 2009 that we founded our global sustainable finance group. And, you know, look, back in 2009, sustainable finance and sustainable investing were actually not really commonly used terms of art, certainly not on Wall Street. So we were very much the first Wall Street bank to really focus um, on sustainable investing in what we believed would really be a core part of business and core to mainstream financial markets. So we, we weren't looking at it as, you know, as a boutique or part of social responsibility or something sort of lovely. We, we really had the belief that it would become um, a part of mainstream capital markets. But at the time, that was very much not the case, right? Back in 2009, um, you had maybe, you know, about, you know, just around 10% of the market that had some sort of sustainable, social responsible mandate on it that might have been just avoiding certain stocks that certain investors didn't want to hold, right? Which is obviously a, you know, a long uh, tradition that goes back to, you know, goes back centuries in, you know, in Europe and probably back to the Quakers in the United States. But we really believe there was, it'd become something more. What we've seen is fast forward over the last 11 years, we've seen increasing lengths of exponential growth rates here. Whereas, um, you know, the, on one of the last, um, that surveys, we saw that in um, more than $12 trillion in the United States have a sustainable investing mandate on it. So that's more than one out of every $4 under professional management. In the U.S. today, the investor has said, I want my money to be in some way aligned with environmental or social or good governance um, factors. Globally, it's even higher. It's actually about one out of every $3 globally that has a sustainable mandate. So we've really just seen an, an exponential increase. Um, and it's uh, it's been driven by, you know, by so many different factors. Um, but one of the, you know, among the um, important factors really has been that even from 10 years ago, we saw millennials in the vanguard, uh, millennials and women really leading the way saying, you know, if we care about an issue, whether it's climate change or social justice or health care, if we really care about that issue, we want to activate all of our resources to it, not just the amount that we might be able to give to charity. But why aren't we thinking about our whole investment portfolio? Um, and so over the last 10 years, we've seen, we've seen an incredible increase in that. So as I said, it's $12 trillion or, or actually probably more in, in the United States, more than $30 trillion globally. And when we poll investors, we're seeing 85% of investors saying yes, that they're interested in aligning their investments with the causes that they care most about. So, so it's interesting. I mean, the, the one in four in the U.S., it, when you think about the type of clients who's embracing that as, as part of that $12 trillion, uh, I wonder, you know, of your typical advisor at Morgan Stanley, is, is there a breakdown in the types of clients that it's appealing to? Is it started mostly institutionally and, and customizable? And then, you know, how, how cross-section across your traditional client base it looks like? Yeah, you know, again, that's been a really fascinating thing to, to chart. And so if you if you go back to when we were starting this journey in '09, I would say that in the early years of our of our working on this, that there were um, that there were probably two um, the two sort of early adopter categories. One would have been um, millennials and women amongst the individual investors who were very focused on how can I how can I align this? All right. So I'll give you just a, you know back in uh, actually in 2015, for example, 85 percent of millennials were interested in sustainable investing, 75% of women, and 71% of men. You fast forward that to even just to 2019, we have 95% of millennials, 86% of women, and, and, the, and the men have now caught up at 84% as well. So amongst the individual investors, we, we saw that early on. And early on, we also saw that it was really um, on the institutional side, probably the, the, you know, the mission-driven um, asset owners. So that in some cases, that was you know, faith-based organizations with their endowments. Um, in many cases, it was uh, um, some of the leading foundations in the country were really, you know, um, you know, really responsible for helping drive a lot of this thinking, saying, hmm, is this really the right way to achieve impact of taking 5% of our endowment every year and giving it away as grants and not looking at the other 95% that is in our endowment and how that's invested? So that's been a critical part of the transition. As, you, as we've evolved over the past 10 years, you know, right now we're actually seeing it being much, much, much um, more widespread. Again, we, we started our first sustainable investing platform on the individual investor side in wealth management um, back in 2012. And we set ourselves what we thought would be this 
stretch goals in five years we would be able to get to um to, to ten billion dollars uh we're now what you know seven eight years out and we're at 47 billion dollars on the individual uh-huh. side um and then on the institutional side yeah when we, we we recently did a poll of institutional asset owners so some of the biggest asset owners in the world 95% of them today say that the, they either are already pursuing sustainable investing integration or considering and trying to figure out how to. So it's, it's really taken off. Yeah, I, I have your one of your asset surveys, I think, where that, that 95% is quoted uh, right up front. Uh, and it, it sort of talks about in terms of what are the challenges of uh, – getting more ESG, and I think the, the top challenge is listed as the quality of the data and where, where things are coming from. As you think about the challenges to getting even wider adoption and, and having that $47 billion scale, how, I guess, do you have goals for that $47 billion now, updated goals, and, and what do you see as, as the, the, the key challenge? No, look, I think I think you're right. Well, so and the challenge has been evolving. I would say in the early, you know, and when we first started this, I would say the single biggest challenge, and that's a lot of our polls brought that up. In the early years, the biggest challenge was people just didn't believe that you could invest and think about sustainability and not have to give up return. Right. So people yeah. just assume, yeah, well, you know, you're, you're being very lovely, Audrey. And if you care about the environment and social issues, that must mean that I'm going to make less money than if I don't care about those things and I invest. And so that's why one of the things we did is we actually founded the Institute for Sustainable Investing back in um, 2013 and set about actually doing a lot of the data analytics to say, well, you know, is the performance case actually there? And what we found is we studied actually um, 11,000 funds over 15 years of performance, and we actually found that there was absolutely no financial trade-off in returns when you compare the sustainable funds to the traditional funds, but that the one place that there was difference was that sustainable funds actually had a 20% smaller downside deviation than traditional funds. And so I've, I've yet to meet many investors or really any investors who say, I'm not interested in investment that has the same return with lower downside volatility. So, you know, with that and a lot of other data from a lot of other, you know, academic institutions and others, I think increasingly people have um, started to understand that they don't need to give up return to align with it. But as to your point, I think now what is the most significant challenge, and I'm, I'm actually really, I'm really glad of it, is that investors are saying, okay, if I'm going to do this, I actually want more, better data to really understand why this is a sustainable investment and what, why and how this is aligning to my to my goals and so if for example I you know I come to you um, you know Jeremy is my financial advisor and say I, I'm really focused on climate change and I really want to have a portfolio that is aligned with climate change with preventing the worst effects with you know adapting to the effects um, I, I, I want more data from you to really understand what is my portfolio doing. I don't want you just sort of say, okay, let me take one of the hundreds of different sources of environmental or social governance data that's cropped up over the past few years, throw that into the mix, and now tell me that you're running an ESG fund. I really want you to, under, to understand the carbon impact, the, you know, a whole variety of different things. And so that's one of the things that actually we're very focused on right now is saying, how do we really go to the next level? And make sure that we're helping you really, you know, perform an X-ray of your portfolio, so you can understand what it is you own, what you want to move away from, what you want to move toward, and what impact that's going to drive. Whether that be in terms of carbon emissions, in terms of, um, you know, low-income communities uh, served, et cetera. Uh, and Audrey, you mentioned sort of going to forty-seven billion in seven or eight years. I, I wonder, you know, you talk about in your uh, survey of asset owners that there's a few different ways people incorporate ESG and sustainability into their portfolios. One is through thematic type solutions, and one is sort of more integrated. How would you say you're seeing people flock towards these type of strategies? Is it as much thematics as it is integrated? Uh, do you think more as as you think about the future, how it's going to start evolving? How how do you think that should be done? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of um, sort of sheer volume, in terms of where, you know, which strategies get the most assets, um, it's been really interesting because, again, you know, five or 10 years ago, we definitely saw the most in sort of restriction screening, right? That investors were like, just, you know, make sure that I'm not in the following industries or sectors that I don't, I don't want to be aligned with. Um, and we've really seen that shift more and more to, um, to ESG integration being, um, you know, the, the, the category that I think is really gathering the most um, these days, and, and that is look, that is really sort of saying um, we want we want to think holistically 
about the the quality of the assets that we're investing in, right? And so, you know, the, and that you would really look to say within a particular industry or sector, are you gravitating towards those that have higher higher marks, you know, sort of perform better, um, and, and considering when you consider all these different environmental and social factors. But um, to your point, I think the thematic area so is um, is is um, is really the one that is coming on strong. Again, as as people have gotten more um, more comfortable with uh, ESG as part of their mainstream investing, and gotten really more sophisticated and more converse, and just at how can you think about integrating sustainability into your investing, we have definitely seen a significant and steady increase in thematics. Right, that once an investor says, "Okay, I am interested in sustainability," that really more and more investors are coming to say, "I'm specifically very focused on this issue or another." In fact, we in our most recent survey of investors, and we ask them, you know, what are the themes you're interested in? The top three themes were um, climate change, plastic waste reduction, and circular economy. Um, and so we are seeing that more and more that there's are there are more um, asset managers developing strategies that really focus on specific impact in those themes, and really you know a quite significant um, increase in investor demand from that. So I think look, I think I actually think you know with my with my crystal ball, I think as you look forward into the market, I think that you're going to see um, again a continued very robust growth in ESG strategies, ESG integration, um, as as more and more people understand that, frankly, environmental and social issues are not, as they're call, called today, sort of extra financial considerations, but they're actually core to, 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 to rigorous financial analysis. And so I think increasingly you're going to see ESG integration strategies becoming more and more the norm of how... Yeah good quality investment is done. And then what you're going to see is really specific growth as people drill down on, you know, I specifically want to focus on climate change or public health care or, you know, creating economic opportunity in low-income areas or communities or countries um, or, you know, something even more specific like marine health, plastic waste reduction, circular economy. Uh, what is circular economy? I, I, you, know, you hear climate change very often. You hear, you know, uh, you know plastic waste is, is obviously a, a very straightforward. What, what is circular economy? Yeah, so circular economy is really a concept of thinking about it. You know, if instead of you, if you think of um, sort of the, uh, it, it's, it's as opposed to a linear uh, philosophy where you take a resource, you turn it into something that you use, you throw in, you use it, and then at the end of life, you throw it away. Circular economy is more about saying, how do we, instead of having this sort of one-way one path from take a resource, use it, and then throw it away, how do we keep that in circulation more? How do we, you know, ideally, really, you know, turn the line into a circle and reuse or recycle or, you know, find a way to reinvent that product? Um, and so plastic waste actually is, uh, is I think, one great – plastic waste reduction is one great example of, of a circular economy um, issue, right, which is if you think about plastic – um, so plastic is a man-made substance, right? It was literally created in a lab by accident one day many, many, you know, years ago. Um, actually, not that many, about 70 or so years ago. Um, and since plastic was invented, we have created more than 8 billion metric tons of plastic waste. Um, unfortunately, um, of that 8 billion tons, I'm sorry, 8 billion tons of plastic, of that 8 billion tons of plastic, more than 6 billion tons of it is waste, currently sitting somewhere on the planet in a river, an ocean, a landfill, um, uh, and um, we've only ever recycled 9% of it. We've only ever incinerated 12% of plastic, and again, the, the rest of the other 79 is just sitting there, including doing things like disintegrating into our water, our salt, and our food. Um, and so rethinking that whole economy and, and instead of having more and more plastic being produced every day that just turns into waste that then sits there and actually never truly biodegrades, um, we are trying to think about how can we make that into more of a, a circular economy where we're actually thinking, how can we put that 6.3 billion metric tons of plastic waste um, to good use? And that's part of how why Morgan Stanley actually last year, um, you know, out of our uh, commitment to sustainable investing, we said, you know what? This problem has gotten so massive that we need to do a specific commitment. And we, as a, um, a financial institution, made a commitment to facilitate the prevention, reduction, and removal of, um, of 50 million tons of plastic waste out of our rivers, oceans, and landfills by 2030. Um, so that's just one example of circular economy. 
So how does Morgan Stanley, that's a, a, an amazing thing you guys are trying to do, how does that uh, manifest? What what are the types of things you do to to do that prevention and, and removal of all that plastic waste? Yeah, well, you know, so look, we're, first of all, we're very conscious that, you know, we're, we're in a financial institution, right? We're not on the front lines of, you know, making plastic or, you know, fig- to turning it into packaging and uh, and then using it and disposing of it and um, other than the way everyone in the economy is. But we realize that this really is an economy-wide problem. And because as a bank, we work with all of the players that are involved in uh, in plastic creation, use, and ultimately, you know, disposal reduction that we could try to uh, try to try to see how we could uh, affect that that sort of life cycle, and so what we've been able to do is um, it's really interesting. Right when we announced the um, the commitment back in uh, April 2019, we actually worked with the World Bank, and we developed sort of a proof of concept bond with them, where they issued a 10 um, I'm sorry, uh, they issued a 10 million dollar bond, so you know, pretty small as a proof of concept uh, around could they issue debt where the proceeds were going to be specifically focused on improving ocean health, especially by reducing plastic waste. Um, what we saw there was it was actually, you know, it, it was very successful. Investors were very interested. And so fast forward just a few months later, um, we were able to work with Pepsi on a $1 billion bond. And the billion-dollar bond, it was their inaugural green bond, a significant portion of that was focused on how could they reduce the virgin plastic in their beverage chain. Uh, you know, and then fast forward, we also recently worked with um, Alphabet to do a five and three quarter billion dollar bonds, the largest ever corporate sustainability bond um, that is focused on a, a variety of sustainability goals, including circular economy initiatives. So our role as a bank is to really work with companies, work with issuers to say, you know what, there's actually very robust investor demand for investments focused on sustainable strategies and outcomes. And so if you align the things that you're thinking about, how your business impacts the environment or plastic waste, and you can actually give investors a line of sight to say, if I, you know, if I choose this bond as opposed to a vanilla bond, right, this bond will actually ensure that my money is being invested in helping reduce plastic um, across Pepsi's beverage chain or across Starbucks stores or, you know, any other any other brand that might choose to do it. That's a way that we're, we're trying to facilitate more attention and more resources flowing to those kinds of strategic um, investments. Well, we're talking with Audrey Choi, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Audrey, I, given some of that, the, the green bond discussion, and given that you uh, previously worked with Janet, uh, or sort of Chief of Staff of Janet, I think I heard at the beginning, uh, you know, the European Central Bank has been taking an initiative to do more, encourage more uh, the ESG-oriented green bonds in Europe. Do you think the Fed would ever start thinking about a mandate here that uh, they have a lot of bond buys, that they should be thinking about similar types of programs? Are you, are you lobbying Janet to make those make those efforts. <laughs> well, obviously Janet's not Janet's not at the Fed anymore right now. Um, uh, she and, knows a few um, people. <laughs> exactly, she does. Um, look, you know, um, I obviously you know uh, uh, don't have a crystal ball or you know or the bat phone to the Fed policymakers, but um, I think you know when you uh, if you look at the global trend, I think it is actually um, you know quite um, you know quite striking. There's now um, an organization called NGFS. It's the Network for Greening the Financial System. Um, um, the last time I checked, I think it had something like 89 central banks from around the world. I'm sure the number has probably gone up uh, since then, so the number probably needs to be updated. But you're, you're increasingly seeing the vast majority of central banks, other regulators, um, multilateral institutions all saying, you know what, it's not just green bonds. What we need to be thinking about um, as finance, as stewards uh, and regulators of the financial markets internationally is that climate change is, you know, the, is an incredibly material, not just investment input, but frankly, megatrend, right? And that it is, it is fundamentally an issue of, um, of business uh, continuity and, frankly, financial system stability, that investors must be thinking about how climate change affects their business, right? I mean, I think that's why you had Mark Carney a number of years ago um, as uh, having the um, the FSB, the Financial Stability Board, focusing on climate change. 
Um, and um, and so I think that what we're seeing is really is that internationally um, that you know that really every major country, every major CEO, um, every risk manager um, needs to think more about climate change as a fundamental business factor. Uh, and frankly, you know, I would say you know our, our chief risk officer, Morgan Stanley, is one of our best partners in terms of thinking about climate change as a core part of business. Yeah, and, and, and firms who are trying to make a big sustainable push try to live and 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 breathe it uh, very much. And and look, sounds with your waste initiative is one big thing you're doing. You also talk a little bit about the sustainable accelerator that's giving different awards. You want to talk about that initiative, how it ties into what Morgan Stanley's trying to accomplish in in this space. Absolutely, Jeremy. That's one of the new initiatives that we're extremely excited about. We just announced it actually uh, this past August. Um, it's the Morgan Stanley Sustainable Solutions Accelerator, and what this um, represents was that you know, again, look, we've been we've been working on sustainable investing um, at Morgan Stanley for the last eleven years. We've been incredibly excited to see the momentum across the industry of now really, you know, just about all of our our partners and competitors focused on sustainable investing. And yet, right, we're still seeing that we're just not getting, um, you know, enough happening to truly bend the curve when it comes to where are the transformative at scale solutions to climate change, to some of our social justice challenges, et cetera. And, um, you know, and part of that is that, um, you know, it's sort of like that old definition of insanity, right? If you, you know, the definition of insanity is keep on doing the same thing and expecting different outcomes. Well, you know, there's a lot of great ideas out there in the world that maybe could be transformative, maybe could be breakthrough, but they don't really fit the mold of sort of the normal funding cycle of things, right? And, uh, and you know, if you think about sort of the normal funding cycle of inventions becoming innovations, becoming truly breakthrough things that have speed and scale to, to change the world, it's a very long process. And frankly, especially with climate change, and so many of the other challenges, we're really running out of time. And so Morgan Stanley, we said, you know what, what can we do to think a little bit outside the normal kind of, you know, business as usual um, and to see if we can try to help find and identify some of those breakthrough thinkers. And so very much inspired by um, something like the MacArthur Genius Award, you know, we, we said, you know, we're, we're going to think about could we find um, a handful, so, you know, start with a handful because we're just starting and then we'll hopefully we'll grow um, over time and within, in subsequent years. But for this year, we're looking, um, we're going to be seeking out five breakthrough thinkers who are thinking about the sustainability, not just with sort of, you know, hopefully a, a better mousetrap, but in a, in, a, in a systems way, right? Because I think when, you know, when I sit back and look at uh, everything we've been focusing on in 2020, one of the clearest messages has been that we can't solve any of these problems in isolation, right? When we're seeing, all, you know, uh, whether it's the pandemic or climate change or social justice issues, there's so many interconnections between these problems and we can't, we can't be looking for single silver bullets or rifle shots to, to solve it. We've really got to be looking at system solutions. And so that's what we're, I'm sorry, that's a very long explanation, I know, but we're super excited about this because we, what we're trying to do is identify a different way of looking at sustainability. Um, and for breakthrough thinkers, we're thinking about this as a systems approach and how do we really think about these interconnections. And we're going to be giving um, a quarter of a million dollars as a prize to, uh, to help uh, add speed to these, uh, these, these thinkers' ideas. Um, and then um, hopefully as meaningful or much more meaningful as we're going to be spending a year working intensively with the winners um, of this prize to see how could Morgan Stanley, through the network we have across our business, how can we really make those right connections um, to to plug that in, that that new thinking into a system where it can reach scale and speed and hopefully uh, get us to uh, some different solutions? You know, it's uh, it's amazing. So you're you're giving some money, but also then working with them closely to help develop their ideas and connect them to your to your networks. It's sort of an interesting uh, partnership there. Absolutely. Now, look, we you know we we really want to be a part of this. We do believe that access to finance can ideally be the oxygen for transformative ideas. And so this is about like, the prize is saying, great transformative idea. Now let's work together to see how we can provide those connections, that oxygen to drive speed and scale. 
Yeah. I, w- I want to come back to some of the portfolio questions. If people are listening in and hear, uh, you know, all the great things Morgan Stanley is doing on the sustainability off front and they think, but how is my portfolio going to change when I come to, you know, a Morgan Stanley team? What what you guys on that platform that you talked about, how they do that. When we talked a little bit about thematics, we talked a little bit about integration. How do you think about building a portfolio that is sort of best best in class that what people can can get coming towards Morgan Stanley? Mm-hmm. Well, look, I think a lot of it is, um, so it, I think it's just a couple pieces of it. In terms of performance, as we've said, you know, we um, have really done a ton of research and we have an, an extraordinary team actually in our global research team that's focused on sustainability research. We've done a ton of research, so we feel like we are really focusing on how do you think about what are the sustainability factors that are most important for any um, industry so that you can actually be selecting the investments um, that are being most mindful of both the risks and opportunities for that industry, for its earnings, for its performance in your portfolio. So that's on the financial performance side of things. Um, you know, but then in addition, what we do, um, especially if you, you know, if you were to come to Morgan Stanley and talk to a financial advisor and say you're interested in sustainability, what we would then do is, is a real in-depth conversation with you because there are so many different ways to do it. So again, it, one, one cut might be thematic and saying, you know, are you, is it, is it really social issues or is it environmental issues? And, and really figuring out how can we develop um, the right choices that, that you are most interested in. Um, we actually have this amazing tool that, um, uh, that was invented at the Institute for Sustainable Investing, which we call MSIQ or Morgan Stanley IQ. And it literally can... Um, do essentially an X-ray of your portfolio. So we could run an analysis of your portfolio um, against what you say you care about. And we could then come back and say, well, you know, Jeremy, wow, it's really interesting. You said that, you know, that biodiversity and workers' rights, just to pick two out of the hat, you know, were the most important things to you. And here's how your portfolio actually lines up. Right. Uh, these these investments actually line up pretty well with the goals you said. These ones actually are you know are out of sync or out of alignment with what you said. And here's actually the adjustments you could make on your portfolio to bring your portfolio into alignment. Um, in terms of also though more um, you know kind of more off the shelf, if you will, what we've also done is we've developed thematic portfolios that are already kind of um, uh, designed to for an investor who is especially focused on gender equity or on um, climate change or on, uh, you know, on, on different goals. We actually had some, we designed some portfolios with our colleagues in wealth management focused on, you know, marine health, plastic waste reduction. Um, and actually that ended up being uh, one of the fastest new product introductions on our platform. Within just a couple of months, uh, it accumulated $100 million of assets. And this is, um, I should have mentioned, this was a low dollar minimum portfolio. So, you know, this is not something where you have to be, a, you know, a, a millionaire or multimillionaire to be in it for $10,000. You can invest in this portfolio that we designed focused on um, ocean health and plastic waste reduction. Um, and again, with, with that, we, within a few months, got oh, more than $100 million worth of uh, investors choosing that one. And then actually, it's, it's now, I think, over $200 million. And as I said, it, it's uh, one of the fastest growing new products on the platform. So increasingly, yeah. we're finding ways to really tailor to different themes. It looks sort of Morgan Stanley has been in the acquisition type mood, and so there was the E Trade acquisition, and then this week we had um, the the news on Eaton Vance, which had both Calvert, which has been a, a long reputable ESG manager, and then also Parametric, which does a lot of customization on screening and and offering all sorts of choice. When you think about the types of solutions, you know, you're going to have the breadth of different solutions. Do you think people are going to go more towards customized? You know, of the twelve trillion today, it probably is mostly customized. I would say. I mean, but uh, you, you know, closer versus prepackaged, trying to get to, to the broad population and that integration you're talking about. How much do you think it's going to end up being customized versus integrated in in the way people do these things? Well, um, look, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I, I think it's it's going to depend a lot on, I mean, that really depends especially on, on the individual investor, right? And, uh, you know, what what their um, sort of, what their goals are, what their liquidity needs are and whatnot. And so I think what you're going to see is a real distribution where, um, you know, for for individual investors, um, there, you know, I think there will be um, different thematic options, but, you know, obviously not necessarily uh, completely customized 
optimized for that one investor. I think say the customization we see more on the, you know, on the, probably on the larger institutional investors who you know who are able to really customize a very specific portfolio to their to their endowments or their other their other goals. Um, but look, I, as I said, I, I think what we're the, the macro trends that we will see whether it's an individual investor or a large um, you know a large asset owner is that there's going to be um, much more focus on ESG integration. Frankly, I think becoming the new normal. Um, that we're then on top of that going to see a lot of more specific focus areas where um, you might have investors say, you know what, I specifically want my portfolio to be customized to align with um, the Paris Accords, for example. Um, or you know, maybe even be more aggressive than the Paris Accords in terms of um, you know, in terms of goals. Uh, and then, as we said again, I think um, uh, a lot on the individual investors and, and certain you know uh, larger investors will will see people going drilling going much much more specifically, whether that be a gender strategy or a plastic waste reduction strategy. Yeah, that's sort of interesting. If you said there's sort of one of the, the key challenges that you think is really important but hasn't developed interesting solutions yet, any any place where you think that people really need some, some more innovative solutions? Well, you know, I think that, um, look, this, uh, as you know, uh, this has been a very um, news-rich year. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that we've seen um, actually uh, with the pandemic and the extraordinarily um, you know, tragic toll that that has been taking around the world is that we have seen investors also aligning to say, how can the social issues that up until recently, people have struggled to figure out how to make that in, uh, you know, a theme that aligns with an investment product. Um, there's been much more focus on thinking about how can we do that. So, you know, one of the things that we were really excited to be able to, to do is we worked with an Italian institution um, back in April to actually develop the first um, COVID social response bond where we helped them raise a billion euros. It actually was a transaction that pretty much reopened the Italian debt markets that were that had been largely shuttered with, with the start of the pandemic hitting Europe. Um, and those that billion euros focused on supporting organizations contributing to the recovery, healthcare facilities, medical equipment, public health technologies. We saw we worked with the Ford Foundation to do a billion dollars um, of a social bond to support NGOs and other vulnerable communities that were hardest hit um, by um, by COVID. COVID, and that was wildly oversubscribed. Um, so I think what we're seeing now is that this is this has definitely been the year where people have started to say, okay, we, we, we kind of get how environmental things, whether it's a clean tech investment or a water purification technology or, you know, other sort of environmental or carbon reduction plays can be part of our portfolio, um, you know, but now we're understanding more and more on, on the social side. But I think there's still a ton of work to be done. We obviously have you know, massively entrenched in systemic uh, challenges around social justice. And there's going to be a lot of work that needs to get done to say where are going to be the most useful places for for capital to try to align as we, uh, you know, as we as companies, as governments make the right investments to, to address some of these social justice challenges. You're in our final probably a little bit over a minute left. Uh, any places that if people want to stay in touch with what things that, that you're producing, that your team's producing, how to, how to keep in touch with everything that's coming out of the, your sustainability office? Oh, terrific. Yeah, I look, I would just Google, you know, Morgan Stanley Institute for Sustainable Investing or just Morgan Stanley Sustainable Investing. And uh, on our the Institute for Sustainable Investing, again, as I said, we were one of the first on the street and we have been uh, focused on making sure that everything that we do, all of the studies and the research that, that I've cited that we produce, all of that is available to the public, right? And so because we are really focused on how do we mainstream this and, and get as many people uh, being able to do what they want to, which is align their goals. So Morgan Stanley Sustainable Investing, if you hit that into Google, it should just take you right to the Institute for Sustainable Investing page and all of the resources on morganstanley.com. Audrey, this has been a great conversation. Very impressive. Thank you so much for sharing and educating our listeners with all that you're doing. This is great. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. We're listening to Behind the Market, Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 